Hi, it's Dom here, pastor at Assemble Church, and this is our podcast. We hope you find what you're looking for today and that you are challenged, inspired, and equipped to live out the life that God has for you. Enjoy the message today. John 19 this morning. If anybody has read ahead, you'll know this is a big one. There is a lot to cover this morning in John 19. We've got Jesus being sentenced to the crucifixion. We've got Jesus being crucified, Jesus dying, and Jesus' burial. So I hope none of you have plans this afternoon. No, I'm joking. We're going to try and get through it nice and quick, but whilst also hearing from the Lord. So if you have your Bibles, turn to John 19. That is, We're basically going to be reading through uh, John 19 today and picking out things. I don't know if there's necessarily going to be a huge revelation moment for everybody this morning, because I imagine quite a lot of us have heard John 19 before, the story of Jesus' death. I'm not looking to, to spin a new way of looking at it, because it's Jesus' death. I'm not looking for a fancy new way to share this message with you this morning, because it's Jesus' death. But I do want us, as we go through this, to remember who Jesus is, because if we have been around church for a while and we have heard this story many times, we may become desensitized to what we have heard and what we have read and an understanding of what actually happened to Jesus in real life, a real person with real feelings and emotions, what happened to him. And we talk a lot, John 19 is marked with the suffering of Jesus, the physical suffering, but also the suffering that he endured of loss, the suffering that he endured by being betrayed by a friend, the suffering of knowing that one of, another one of his friends was going to deny him three times. The suffering and injustice of being arrested and accused of a crime that you have not committed. The suffering of being mocked and beaten and laughed at. And yet Jesus' response through all of this is to hold the heavenly values that he has taught us all the way through John's gospel. He does not respond in anger resentment, frustration. Even the people who betray him, he washes their feet. He responds in love to the humans, knowing that it's for that very reason he is doing what he is doing. So we often think of the physical suffering of Jesus. But I want us to remember also the emotional suffering that Jesus would have felt and his response in all of this. Through the Gospel of John, we've learned so much about Jesus. We've learned so much about his character, who he says he is. We've learned about Jesus, the Son of God, the Son of Man. So before we dive into the scripture, I just want to pull out some, some thoughts and some things I've written down to take a moment, each of us, to remind ourselves, like I said before we begin, who is Jesus, so that we connect Jesus with this person that we're reading about today. Jesus is the son of God and he is the son of Mary and Joseph. A boy from Nazareth who survived 40 days and 40 nights in the desert and resisted temptation. A carpenter who drove out evil spirits and demons, 
who healed Simon's mother-in-law, a man with leprosy and a paralytic man. A person who rested and raised a boy to life and raised a girl to life and raised Lazarus to life who ate with prostitutes and tax collectors and welcomed thieves, who calmed a raging storm and walked on water, who healed an outcast, downtrodden, forgotten woman who had bled for 12 years, who fed 5,000 people with five loaves and two fish, who healed on the Sabbath and made blind eyes see, who let the little children come to him, who felt anger, and cast out gambling and selling from the temple courts, who washed his disciples' feet, including his betrayer. Let us pray. Jesus, who healed, restored, and loved, who prayed and fasted and laughed and wept, help us to see the miraculous and the merciful today, alongside the suffering and the sin that placed you on that cross. Help us to not gloss over the cross and run straight to the empty tomb, but hold in tension the expectation of the miracle with the reality of the cross. Amen. Let's open our Bibles. John 19, we're going to start right at the beginning in verse 1. Then Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged. The soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head. They clothed him in a purple robe and went up to him again and again, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they struck him in the face. So Jesus is now in front of Pilate. He's been brought to Pilate. And if, um, if you remember from John 18, Pilate has said, I, this man is innocent. I find no reason to go ahead with this. He's trying to release Jesus. And the crowds, the Jewish crowd, the, the chief priests and the religious leaders are saying, no, no, crucify him. We don't we don't want Barabbas, we want Jesus. Uh, sorry, we want Barabbas, we don't want Jesus. And so it seems a bit odd then that Pilate takes him and flogs him, really, doesn't it? Because he's saying this, this man's innocent, and yet Pilate is willing to take an innocent man and have him, have him flogged. And to be flogged meant that you were, you were hit with, with a whip that had multiple leather strands on it. And then on those strands, there were pieces of sharp, pottery or um, sharp items, maybe bone, that would, would have cut your back as you were whipped. There's a quote from William Barclay, who's a, a Scottish theologian and minister, and he said, it literally, this is about flogging, it literally tore a man's back to strips. Few remained conscious throughout the ordeal. Some died, many went raving mad. So why is this happening if Jesus is innocent? Well, some people think that Pilate did this to, to satisfy the crowds, that they hoped that when they saw this man in pain, in agony, that they would change their minds and say, actually, you're right, he's suffered enough, he's he suffered his consequence, we don't need to crucify him. But we read that, that that doesn't happen as we read on. But also these soldiers are mocking Jesus. They're, they're saying, hail, king of the Jews. And they, they struck him in the face and they put a crown on his head, a crown of thorns. I, I don't think they had one lying around. 
I think they probably had to go away and make that crown of thorns. They were quite inventive in the way that they mocked Jesus. They found purple robes. Purple is the color of royalty. It was expensive. Not anyone could wear purple robes. And they put him up, put them on him. And you know, and if you look at that in a different way, just make a few small changes to that. They put a crown on Jesus' head and they clothed him in royal robes. That's worship. That's worship, isn't it? Putting a crown on Jesus' head and dressing him in royal robes. And yet the soldiers have put a crown of thorns on his head and they're dressing him in robes out of mockery. And it made me think about sometimes that fine line between mocking Jesus and worshipping Jesus. Perhaps when we think we're worshipping Jesus, but actually we're worshipping the the skills and the talents that he's given us. Or we're singing songs and going through motions, but we're not actually worshipping Jesus. That's a mockery, really, of Jesus. It's not worshipping properly. Or perhaps it's using the skills and the talents that Jesus has given you, but not to glorify him, to glorify yourself, to, to gather what you can in this world, even maybe to not glorify God, but also to maybe bring shame on God. There is a fine line between mockery and worship. So we carry on in verse 4. Once more, Pilate came out and said to the Jews, Look, I am bringing him out to you to let you know that I find no basis for a charge against him. When Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, Pilate said to them, Here is the man. As soon as the chief priests and the officials saw him, they shouted, crucify. We don't know what the crowd shouted. We only know here what the, the officials and the chief priests shouted. They shouted, crucify, crucify. Perhaps in that moment, the crowds were taken aback by seeing this man bloodied, in pain, that they probably knew really had only ever done good things. Why was this man being sentenced? But the, the chief priests, they've made their mind up. This man, he cannot live. Jesus cannot live because they see him as a threat. And so they shout so loud that perhaps a beat or two later, the crowd join in. They followed their religious leaders. But Pilate answered, you take him and crucify him. As for me, I find no basis for a charge against him. The Jews insisted, we have a law and according to that law, he must die because he claimed to be the son of God. When Pilate heard this, he was even more afraid. As a Roman, Pilate would have an understanding of what it meant to be a son of God. They, there were many gods that the Romans worshipped. And they had, he will have had this, this understanding of a son of God. And he heard that and thought, oh, gosh, if he is a son of God, I don't want to be responsible for this. He doesn't know that he is son of the God. This has frightened him. And then verse 9 says, And he went back inside the palace. Where do you come from? He asked Jesus. But Jesus gave him no answer. Do you refuse to speak to me? Pilate said. Don't you realize I have power either to free you or to crucify you? But Jesus answered, You would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. 
Therefore, the one who handed me over to you is guilty of a greater sin. This interesting discussion of power between Jesus and Pilate. And Pilate is probably confused. I bet he's used to people that are sentenced to be crucified, begging and pleading and claiming innocence and doing anything they can to not have to go through with that horrendous ordeal. And yet Jesus is silent because he knows what has to happen. He could beg and plead if he wanted, but it's not going to change what happens next. But then also the fact that Pilate is claiming some power over God because this is God's plan. Unfortunately, Pilate has no power in this situation. He has no choice. There is only one decision he can make and he will make it in the end. But also Pilate doesn't even seemingly have power over the Jewish um, leaders and officials because he has tried three times unsuccessfully to send Jesus back out and to not sentence him. Pilate doesn't realize it, but he has no power right now. Verse 12. From then on, Pilate tried to set Jesus free, but the Jews kept shouting, if you let this man go, you are no friend of Caesar. Anyone who claims to be a king opposes Caesar. When Pilate heard this, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judge's seat at a place known as the Stone Pavement, which in Aramaic is Gabbatha. It was the day of preparation of Passover week, about the sixth hour. Here is your king, Pilate said to the Jews, but they shouted, take him away, take him away, crucify him. Shall I crucify your king? Pilate asked. We have no king but Caesar, the chief priests answered. Finally, Pilate handed him over. Finally, Pilate handed him over to them to be crucified. They've discovered Pilate's weakness here. Pilate is in a position of power, and that power, all power in Rome, comes from Caesar. And uh, the Jewish leaders and religious officials have realized that if They tell Pilate, ooh, Caesar's not going to be happy if you let someone else who's claiming to be a king live. That's his weakness. Because like most people in power, they don't want to lose power. In fact, he probably would quite like some more power. And this isn't going to go down well with Caesar. And here is his weakness. He said the whole way through, I see no reason this happened. This man is innocent. This man is innocent. And yet... He still sentences him to death because he knows if he doesn't, the ramifications to him could be bad. So in the end, he says, fine, I hand him over to you to be crucified. The second part of verse 16. So the soldiers took charge of Jesus, carrying his own cross He went out to the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. Here they crucified him, and with him two others, one on each side and Jesus in the middle. Here they crucified him. Four words. One small part of a sentence. Here they crucified him. Such an important and huge moment. 
four words, one part of a sentence. And initially, this kind of upset me. I thought, this is a huge moment. This is horrendous. Why is there not more emotion in this? This is written by John. This is meant to be Jesus' friend. But John is writing a testimony, a factual testimony, that he is not spinning with emotional manipulation, that he's not trying to create hype. He's writing a factual eyewitness testimony so that those who read will believe. I can only imagine what John probably wanted to write. I watched as my rabbi, my teacher, my friend, my God was nailed to a rough cross. I saw him wince as his flesh was pierced. My heart broke. I couldn't look. Some jeered and laughed. I wanted to cry out. I wanted to get him off that cross. But John wrote the facts to make it a reliable witness account. But it does mean that sometimes we can gloss over these moments. Jesus was crucified. And I have a quote about crucifixion written by Cicero, who was a Roman statesman actually at this time. Um, you know, he will have seen crucifixion. He was there and around when the Romans used the cross as a form of torture. And this is what he said about it. It is a crime to bind a Roman citizen. To scourge him is an act of wickedness. To execute him is almost murder. What shall I say of crucifying him? An act so abominable, it is impossible to find any word adequately to express. That's how bad it was. That somebody at the time, it's not just with hindsight that we look back and go, oh gosh, that's a bit harsh. Even at the time, people thought crucifixion was a horrendous thing to do even to somebody who was guilty. And then this image as well, that Jesus is in the middle. It says here, it says, Here they crucified him, and with him two others, one on each side, and Jesus in the middle. I feel like this image just says so much, doesn't it, if we stop and actually think about it. There's three people condemned to death, accused of breaking the law in some way. Jesus is the only one who is innocent. On each side are two guilty people. And in, in the account that is written by Luke, we actually read of an exchange between Jesus and one of these men. It's in chapter 23 in Luke. Um, if you get a chance to read it this week. I think it's a really beautiful exchange where this condemned man sees Jesus for who he is, declares that Jesus Christ is the son of God and is saved. And even on the cross, even in agony, Jesus is not sulking and feeling sorry for himself. Jesus is looking at those around him. One more, God, one more. Let's bring one more home. Come on, come on. And this man comes to know Jesus in that last moment. But the man on the other side doesn't. So what we see is Jesus in the center, an innocent man condemned to death for our sin. 
and on one side a guilty man who recognizes Jesus for who he is. His sins are forgiven and he lives a life of eternity. And on the other side, a guilty man who cannot see Jesus for who he is, who is condemned to a life without God. And that's the story of humanity, isn't it? Jesus in the middle. We just have to choose to go through him to God. He said it himself. I am the gate. I am the way. Nobody gets to the Father except through me. But also, Jesus is the center of God's plan for humanity, for the restoration of humanity. Jesus is in the middle. And Jesus' life splits history. B.C. and A.D., Jesus in the middle, this image is so much more than just how it happened to be when they put the three crosses up. Verse 19, Pilate had a notice prepared and fastened to the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this sign for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city and the sign was written in Aramaic, Latin and Greek. The chief priests of the Jews protested to Pilate, do not write the king of the Jews, but that this man claimed to be the king of the Jews. Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. This sign probably says a lot more than even Pilate realizes. Jesus of Nazareth, a man of inconsequence from a place that no one's ever really heard of, a human, the son of man, Jesus of Nazareth the king of the Jews, the son of God. And this is who we have to, to remember. This is who we have, to, we have to put together, those two parts of Jesus, the son of man, fully human, and the son of God, fully God. I don't think Pilate realized quite how profound what he was writing was. Verse 23, when the soldiers crucified Jesus, they took his clothes, dividing them into four shares, one for each of them, with the undergarment remaining. This garment was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. Let's not tear it, they said to one another. Let's decide by lot who will get it. This happened that the scripture might be fulfilled, which said, they divided my garments among them and cast lots for my clothing. So this is what the soldiers did. Near the cross of Jesus stood his mother, his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother there and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, dear woman, here is your son and to the disciple, here is your mother. From that time on, this disciple took her into his home. There's that little nod to the humanity in the testimony. John referring to himself as the disciple that Jesus loved. But also this lovely moment, again, of care from Jesus. Knowing the suffering and the pain of watching her son die and what that will have meant to his mother. And not only in that moment, but in what is to come. A woman without a son, a woman without a husband. So Jesus makes sure that she's taken care of. Another act of love. So holding the values of the kingdom 
that he came and taught Jesus, even in this darkest and weakest and most difficult moment, was never hypocritical of what he had taught and what he teaches those around him. I'm going to keep going. So verse 28. Later, knowing that all was now completed and so that the scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. A jar of wine vinegar was there. So they soaked a sponge in it, put the sponge on a stalk, a stalk of hyssop plant and lifted it to Jesus's lips. When he had received the drink, Jesus said, it is finished. With that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. It is finished. Jesus' lips were wet. Perhaps this was so he could say it louder. You know, maybe we, we sometimes hear that as a, a relief. <sighs> it is finished. But actually... I think it was a victorious declaration. It is finished. It is finished. Not the moan of somebody who is in agony. Not the cry of pain from somebody who can't wait for it to be finished. But a victorious cry. It is finished. Jesus shows he has control until the very end. It says that he chose to give up his spirit. And he waited until all the scripture was fulfilled, knowing that all was now completed. And so that the scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. That was the last thing he needed to do to fulfill all the scriptures. He gave up his own spirit. And it says he, he bowed his head. Jesus did not hang his head in defeat. He bowed his head in peace. He declared it is finished in a, from a place of victory and he did not hang his head in defeat. He bowed his head in peace. You might remember from when we looked at John 10, which was a while ago, so I'll forgive you if you don't. But John 10, verses 17 to 18, Jesus talks about this moment. He declares in that that I, only I, will give up my own life. Let's read it. John 10. Verses 17 to 18. The reason my father loves me is that I lay down my life only to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. This command I received from my father. I wonder if in that moment any of the disciples and followers of Jesus remembered that. I wonder if any of them were waiting, thinking, is something else going to happen? Maybe 
it was a bit of an anticlimax. Maybe they thought, oh, you told us you're the son of God. We've seen you do these miracles. We believe it. We know that you don't have to suffer in this way. Maybe they felt a little bit frustrated or angry towards Jesus in midst with their sorrow and their grief and their pain. He didn't have to do that. He could still be here. He's got power and authority. He could have not gone through that. I wonder if any of them remembered that scripture and knew that this wasn't the end, that Jesus had told them, I will lay down my life, but I will pick it back up again. Now, it was the day of preparation, and the next day was to be a special Sabbath because the Jews did not want the bodies left on the cross during the Sabbath. They asked Pilate to have the legs broken and the bodies taken down. The soldiers therefore came and broke the legs of the first man who had been crucified with Jesus, and then those of the other. But when they came to Jesus and found that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. Instead, one of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear, bringing a sudden flow of blood and water. The man who saw it has given testimony, and his testimony is true. He knows that he tells the truth, and he testifies that you also may believe. These things happened so that the scripture would be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And as another scripture says, they will look on the one they have pierced. So much has happened in such a relatively small amount of scripture. Jesus has gone through so much. Those that love him have gone through so much. And there's the very physical and very visual account of what happened with Jesus. But there's the whole other side that we don't, we don't see written here. Because John didn't witness the, the moment that perhaps the, the transferring of the sin and the shame onto Jesus of all of humanity. We don't see a pinpoint of, of when that happened. Because John is writing what he sees. He does not write what Jesus feels or even, in fact, what he feels. But we must not forget who Jesus is when we read this story. And I would really suggest, recommend, that in this holy week you take the time to read the four different accounts of Jesus' death. Because together you get this full image. You know, some people say that because they're different it means that it's not true. But actually... It's different people's perspective. All of us could sit here today, have been in this room and write an account of what happened in this service and every single one would be different because we're seeing it from our perspective, through our eyes, through what we've come in feeling this morning, for what we've got happening later today, for how God spoke individually to us. And reading each one of the gospel accounts of the death of Jesus 
helps to build a full, almost 3D image of what actually happened in that time. So I would really highly recommend doing that this Holy Week. You know, sometimes it's hard, isn't it? Because because the, the position that we're in now, we know what is going to come next. We know that Sunday's around the corner and, you know, it's not very comfortable to sit in Good Friday. It's not a comfortable place to sit. And I don't think that we need to deny the fact that we know that Jesus rose again. We don't need to deny ourselves that because that's important. But we do have to take the time to sit in the uncomfortable space in between Good Friday and Easter Sunday. Because what it reminds us of is something quite uncomfortable, and that's our sin. That's the places that we fall short. The whole reason that that happened, there would have there would be no need for Jesus to die on the cross if we were not a sinful humanity. And it's not a nice thing to dwell on. It's also not nice to dwell on the suffering of somebody that we love. But we must understand the full impact of that to fully rejoice on Easter Sunday. And believe me, we plan to rejoice on Easter Sunday. And we will, and it will come in good timing. But now, we have to sit in that place of expectation and waiting. Doesn't mean there can't still be joy and smiles. But I think it's important that we don't rush and run to the, to the garden and the empty tomb. You know, th there was three days, and I'm sure there's three days for many reasons. But the three days in between are, are significant for a purpose. Three days to wait and wonder, to grieve, to acknowledge the things where we have fallen short. And then on Sunday, the chance to celebrate in joyful freedom that Jesus rose again. That everything he did, everything he suffered, the physical, the emotional, everything was for us to have a relationship with God. And you can't fully separate those things, but it is important that we don't rush into Easter Sunday and the celebration. And there's, there's two things that I would like to kind of bring from what I've shared this morning. And I really hope that each of you have, have got something personally as well that God has spoken to you through. But the two things that really stuck out for me, well, well one was there may be some people in here that hear this as the story that they heard in school, as the story that they heard maybe growing up in church, as a story that they don't particularly connect with. A story about a man who maybe didn't even live that's in an old book that I'm not sure is true. But actually, this is a story of the salvation of all of humanity. And so it would not be right to move past this moment without giving an opportunity for anybody who this morning has come into contact with Jesus. Who can hear this and understand the love that God has for them. The love that he has for them that is so strong and so great that he can endure the physical and emotional suffering of the cross. So that 
we can be with God in glory for eternity. So in a moment, we are going to pray a prayer. Uh, And this is not a magic prayer of magic words. This is a prayer of repentance and acknowledging Jesus as our Lord and Savior. Two things, two important things. Jesus is our Lord. He is our King. We serve him. He is our Savior. He laid down his life for us. Both are important. Jesus as our Lord is great, but if we don't acknowledge him as our saviour, we don't fully understand Jesus. And if we acknowledge Jesus as our saviour, but not as our Lord, we do not fully understand Jesus. So we are gonna, we're going to pray this prayer. And you may have prayed this prayer literally a thousand times. You may have prayed it 50 times. You may be praying it for the first time, but it doesn't change how powerful this prayer is as a moment of reflection and reminder, or as a moment that changes your life forever. Either way, it's important. So there are going to be some words that come up on the screen. We're going to pray this prayer together. I'm then going to ask everybody just to bow their heads, and we're going to give a moment for anyone who wants to respond. But I would love for us all to pray it out loud together. And then there is going to be a secondary response as well after this. Dear Lord Jesus... I acknowledge that I have sinned against you. Thank you for dying on the cross to save me from the effects of my sin. You have done what I could never do by myself. I repent of my old ways and ask you to lead and guide me. With your help, I will live my life for you. I confess with my mouth and with my heart that you are Lord. Thank you for the salvation I receive and my eternity spent with you. Amen. Let's bow our heads. And this is a moment for all of us to think on what we have just declared, what it means for the rest of today, for the rest of this week and for the rest of our lives. But it's also a moment to allow anybody who has never confessed that Jesus Christ is Lord to do that now. And if that is you, I'd love for you to raise your hand And it gives us a moment to pray into the day when we come into this church and there will be hands lifted all over this place. We pray, Lord, that salvation would be rampant in Newark. We pray, Lord, that your spirit would come. We pray, Lord, that each of us would bring your glory and your goodness wherever we go. Pulling people to you, God. Amen. And then this this second um, sort of, I guess, challenge <laughs> for myself that I, that I pulled out of this is that that very idea that Jesus suffered the absolute unthinkable and unimaginable, and yet in every way he held fast to the kingdom values, and he did not in any moment, treat anybody as less than human. He did not treat anybody with anything less than kindness and love. He didn't shout. He didn't tell, he didn't hit back when people hit him. He didn't show anger or frustration. He didn't try to not have to go through with what he was doing. He didn't, he still 
washed Judas's feet. He knew what was to come, and yet Jesus still showed love and kindness to Judas in, in this whole process. And actually, that is hugely challenging for us. Perhaps we might think, well, you know, Jesus has it easy in us because he is also fully God. And that is true. Maybe it's easier to control your emotions when you're fully God. But, and I think I say this most, time, most times I preach, it doesn't mean that we shouldn't try. Like Dom said earlier, you know, we do believe that we are being transformed from one degree of glory to the next. And sometimes transformation is painful and difficult. And it looks like acknowledging things that we're doing that are not godly. It looks like how we respond to difficulties, setbacks, painful moments, betrayals and grief. And trying to do better. To reflect Jesus. Because I don't think there's an emotion that we can think of that Jesus probably didn't feel in this period leading up to his death. And yet, he still acted with love and kindness in everything he did. And so it's a big challenge. And it's one that I feel so keenly myself. How do I respond? How do I hold on to the kingdom values that Jesus has taught me, that I have learned throughout the gospel of John? How do I do that when things are not how I want them to be, when I am angered and frustrated, when I am jealous? And so this morning I was praying and I thought, actually, this is probably a good prayer that we could all pray together. And that is, Jesus, point out to me in the moment when I am responding wrong. Make it clear to me when I am falling short and help me, Lord, to respond better. Guide me, Holy Spirit. Prompt me. And encourage me that I will too would hold the kingdom values that I have been taught by Jesus. And that's not going to be easy. And I don't think it's going to happen overnight. But I don't think that's what God wants from us. I think he wants us to slowly transform from one degree of glory to another. Not miraculously overnight be completely sinless but it's the fact that we try it's the fact that we want to change that's the most important thing now I think we've gone through a lot of heavy stuff this morning haven't we yes yes and sometimes heavy stuff can make us quite reflective and that's okay Sometimes heavy stuff can make us want to respond in worship, you know, hearing about Jesus and everything he did on the cross. We might want to respond in praise and worship. We might want to lift our hands. We might want to sing glory to him. We might want to sit and listen as songs and worship wash over us. We might want to dance. We might want to cry. We might want to fall to our knees in front of God. Every response is okay. And we're going to give some time for that now. We're going to worship in, in many different ways. Worship is not just singing. 
We're also going to have the prayer team here as well up at the front. Prayer is an act of worship, bringing things before God. And so as we sing, as we sit, as we listen, as we respond in the way that we want to, as we pray or as we are prayed for, all of this is a response to what we've heard this morning. So let's give some space for that, to respond in the way that you feel God is prompting you to respond. That's all for now. We pray that you heard something that brought life to you today so that you may go and be the person that God called you to be. God bless you.